In this week's episode, we answer your questions, and we talk about pirate ships, Joe Camel, and simplification. Bringing hope and healing. It's your source for personal growth, mental health, and interesting ideas. Thoughtful Mind with Svee. Here's your host, Svee Hilsenrath. And welcome back to Thoughtful Mind with Svee. I'm your host, Svee Hilsenrath. This week's Gratitude City shout-out goes to Roxy, Mississippi. Thank you to everyone in Roxy, Mississippi for listening in. This week is our Q&A episode. We're going to answer some questions that were sent in by listeners. Let's get right to it. Most of the people that sent in questions wish to remain anonymous, so we're going to honor that. The first one is from somebody who wishes to remain anonymous. From a mental health standpoint, are electronic cigarettes safe, especially for teenagers? That's an excellent question. And before I answer it, I do want to point out, I think the smartest thing that electronic cigarette companies did was rebrand themselves as vapes or jewels and changing the shape. Anything to get away from the negative vibes of actual tobacco cigarettes was brilliant marketing on their part. So whoever thought of that should get a raise. Um, so to answer the question, are e-cigarettes or jewels or vapes, I'll use all those terms, are they safe? Well, first of all, safe is a relative term. Safe compared to what? Before we get to the mental health piece, let's talk about the idea that vapes are medically safe. And we could definitely say that e-cigarettes are safer than traditional tobacco cigarettes. First of all, tobacco cigarettes have a heavier smoke. They have ash. They release carbon monoxide. They have tar in them. Cigarettes, traditional cigarettes, are the leading cause of death in the U.S. at 480,000 people annually, vying neck and neck with obesity. Some years it's obesity, some years it's cigarettes. Those are the two leading causes of preventable deaths in the United States. And e-cigarettes and vapes are often marketed as a way to stop smoking, uh, to curb smoking. I was curious about this myself, whether or not e-cigarettes help people to stop smoking. So I asked people I know that use vapes. And I said, do you, did you stop smoking based? And the answer basically came down to they stopped using cigarettes, but now they're using vapes more. And if they're out of vape juice, they might buy regular cigarettes. So e-cigarettes are not a way to stop smoking or, or more specifically, not a way to stop using nicotine. And not only my personal unofficial research, but professional quality research shows that people that use switch to e-cigarettes don't go down their nicotine use. In fact, many people take in more nicotine when they're using vapes because they can use it in more places. They don't have to keep relighting it. Uh, it's one continuous stream. Like if you're going to smoke cigarettes, there's an end to the cigarette. So even if you smoke two, but there's a completion feeling to having finished it. Whereas with the vape, it takes a lot longer to get to that completion feeling. So you end up taking in more nicotine over time. Also, I should point out that a lot of research is showing that people that have never smoked begin to use tobacco cigarettes because they started with vapes. In other words, they did nothing, and then they started using vapes, and from vapes, they switched to regular cigarettes. And we can even see this in the market because many cigarette companies are now buying vape companies, now buying electronic cigarette companies. And one reason is because it's a gateway to using regular cigarettes. I also want to point out there's different types of electronic cigarettes with different chemicals, different delivery systems. And when I speak to people, they say, oh, it's just, it's just water vapor. No, it's, it's not just water. None of them are. It's not just water vapor. Uh, they contain many chemicals, 
different brands contain different chemicals. But one of the most prevalent chemicals in vapes is formaldehyde, which is poison, and other chemicals that can cause irreversible lung damage. Now, people will say, well, there's no damage from secondhand smoke. That's also not true. That's also not true. In 2016, the Surgeon General found that secondhand vapor contained chemicals linked to serious lung disease, that there were chemicals that are found in car exhausts were found in this vape, that there's metals such as tin and nickel and lead. And it's true that it does dissipate better than cigarette smoke, but it's still being put into the air. And people that otherwise wouldn't breathe in these chemicals and metals are now breathing them in. In addition to that, a lot of the research has been around the chemicals found in e-cigarettes. But in 2015, an article in the New England Journal of Medicine found that when they're heated up, the chemicals, because they have to be heated up to be turned into vapor, that when heated up, the chemicals change and may lead to a 5 to 15 times greater chance of cancer for long-term users than regular cigarettes. Many of the e-cigarettes use an aerosol delivery system, which is the same stuff that people are very concerned about when it comes to the environment or health. You know, people are against it in spray bottles or deodorant cans. Well, that's what people are sucking in when they're using e-cigs. And so just from a purely health point, and this also impacts your mental health because good mental health often starts with a healthy body. So from a purely medical point of view, are e-cigarettes safe? Well, they're safer than regular cigarettes but they're definitely not safe. And even though they're being marketed as such, they are not. Now, this is just from a medical point of view. From a mental health point of view, it's important to point out, like I said before, that it creates addicts, nicotine addicts, out of people who were not. So people that would not have smoked start smoking because they started getting addicted to nicotine through e-cigarettes. Because the main ingredient in e-cigs, in vapes, is nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive drug. Not only is nicotine an addictive drug, research shows that it's one of the hardest drugs to quit. And people are always shocked when I say this, but it's true. The research shows that nicotine is one of the hardest drugs to stop using. And when you're using it through e-cigs, as we mentioned before, it's easier to take in more nicotine than through traditional smoking because you have less limitations to where you can use them and you have greater access to immediate use. Even in e-cigs, nicotine has negative effects on the heart. That's important to point out. Another piece of this is that the people that are using e-cigs, a greater and greater market share of them are preteen and teenage users because they're marketed as being safe. Like any other highly addictive substance, nicotine has a profound negative effect on the brain, especially in the preteen and teenage users whose brains are still developing. In addition to the way that all addictions affect the brain, which we'll get to in a second, E-cigs negatively affect cognitive development. It's going to be a, it's going to be interesting to see uh, the last time that cigarettes were marketed to kids, which was in the 90s with Joe the Camel. The government stepped in and basically stopped Camel cigarettes from using their character because it was targeting kids. And I do wonder if we're going to see some crackdown on e-cig advertising for the same reason. Although it is important to point out the government has basically put no limitations on vapes or e-cigarettes, which is a separate problem. Some of the other bad parts about nicotine, and again, nicotine is the main reason people use e-cigs, is that nicotine leads to other addictions, including drugs and alcohol. This is borne out by research. People that smoke are more likely to become alcoholics or drug addicts. And that's because 
you're creating an addictive personality. Somebody that, that's addicted to one thing is more likely to become addicted to something else. With nicotine, nicotine leads to higher anxiety over time. Uh, although people that smoke will say that smoking relaxes them. That's true. For a short time after taking a nicotine, a person will feel relaxed. However, the body comes to crave that drug and the brain gets anxious when it's not taking that drug in. Therefore, over time, people become more stressed, more anxious, as well as the physical effects that nicotine has on the brain creates more stress and anxiety. Nicotine is also linked to depression, but it's not clear which came first. Do depressed people tend to smoke or do smokers tend to be more depressed? Most likely it's both, that depressed people smoke more and people that smoke feel more depressed, and therefore it's a loop that feeds off each other. But again, it's not tobacco that's causing that. It's not tar or, or carbon monoxide. It's nicotine, the drug within it. So from a mental health standpoint, are e-cigarettes safe? No. All right, next question. This is from an email. Dear Tzvi, my name is Yossi, and I'm an avid listener of your podcast and large fan. Thank you. Your content has really helped me focus on personal mental development and to avoid complacency. Thank you. I wanted to suggest a topic of a future episode, Dominance Hierarchy. I'll be interested for you to talk about the general concept and how it should affect our daily lives, if at all. This is especially interesting in the context of intimate relationships, like a spouse or within a family. Thank you for your hard work on the podcast and whether you use the suggestion or not. I look forward to listening to future episodes. Good luck, Yossi. Thank you, Yossi, for your question. It's an excellent question. All right, so let's talk for a minute about dominance hierarchies and why they're important, why we need them, and then what it would look like within a family, and more specific, what it would look like in a love relationship, such as between a wife and a husband. Dominance hierarchies occur in social settings, both within people and within animals with enough intelligence. Anytime you have multiple individuals competing for a finite amount of resources, and you have individuals engaging in relationships, you're going to have dominance hierarchies. We're going to really focus on the people aspect of it, but there's a lot of interesting uh, thinking out there about dominance hierarchies when it comes to animals that we can then extrapolate and learn to people. I know Jordan Peterson has work on lobsters, amongst other people. Whenever two people interact, whether it's one time, but especially repetitively over time, they form relationships. And a large part of these relationships revolve around resources, such as food or energy, time, money, attention. Because all of these things are finite, who gets what and in what amount and in what setting is something that is a constantly evolving and constant back and forth between people. And if every single time we needed to figure this out, we would spend time using our intellect to figure it out, nothing would get done. And because nothing would get done, no one would be safe. Nothing would be accomplished. And so basically, as a shortcut to getting things done and keeping people safe, we've developed what we call dominance hierarchies, which basically means one person in the relationship is the dominant. One person is, is more submissive. One person gets to say what happens. The other person follows. Now, when we hear these things in our modern age, it's, it sounds bad to our, our modern sensibilities because we believe in personal freedom and the importance of the individual, and we're against any kind of discrimination or totalitarianism, and the word dominant it kind of evokes that kind of stuff. But dominance hierarchies are good. They're needed. They're, they're real, and it's what 
keeps the world going. We'll give some examples in a second. But I do want to point out there is a negative sounding connotation, although they are good things. So let's look at an easy example. If you look at a corporation or a company, you have the top, you have the CEO or the president, and then you have the various levels of workers underneath on lower and lower levels of dominance and higher levels of being submissive to the top. Now, when you're at the bottom, it's easy to say, well, I should be running the company or I know what to do. But the bottom line is you need to have one person at the top and then successively larger, but not much larger groups underneath. Because if everyone would have a fair share in how the company was run, if everything was done by a vote, if every decision was made only by getting everyone together and having everyone's opinion, nothing would happen. And not only that, but bad things would happen because people tend to fall into groupthink. And when things are done by committee, they're generally not done well. And we reward the dominant one. We reward the one at top by giving them a larger paycheck than the one at the bottom. And that might seem unfair. But the bottom line is the one at the top takes greater responsibility because the one at the bottom is only responsible for themselves. The one on top of them is responsible for themselves and the next layer under. And each time you go up a rung on the ladder, the, that rung is responsible for all the rungs underneath. So when you get to the top, you're, you have somebody who's responsible for the entire company. Uh, a number of years ago, Forbes magazine did an article where they measured um, the, the lowest paycheck to the greatest stress as far as work. So if you have a high-stress job but a high paycheck, then you weren't on the list. And if you have a low paycheck but a low-stress job, you weren't on the list. My, um, <laughs> my chosen profession of social work uh, was at the top of the list of lowest paycheck to highest stress. But that having been said, along with air traffic controller and others, CEOs were on the list. That as much money as CEOs make, and often they make a lot, it still does not measure to the level of stress and responsibility that they have because they're responsible for sometimes thousands or millions of people. The decisions they make impact many, many people and sometimes impact the entire country, the entire economy. And that's the trade-off. The trade-off is that we give the dominant one a greater share of the resources and a better share of the resources, but we also give them a greater share and a better share of the responsibilities. And so what the submissive one of the relationship gets is a sense of safety and convenience. Another example, in schools, teachers are dominant and students are submissive. And when teachers start to feel equal to the students and start to give more power in the classroom back to the students it usually results in chaos. I remember when I was in school, I had a professor who said, we're all going to decide all the rules of the classroom together. And we did. And what ended up happening is within just a few minutes, it led to some petty bickering. Now, everyone was very polite, but there was some petty bickering going on. And these were all adults. You can imagine how much worse it would have been with children. Another example, uh, and here you can really see that economy is pirate ships. People don't know this, but on pirate ships, the system was very democratic. Basically, everybody had an equal vote in all decisions. The captain, the first mate, down to the scullery boy, the one that mopped the deck, they each had an equal vote in all decisions, with one exception, combat. When it came to combat, the pirate captain was in charge, and all of his orders were obeyed without question. It was the only time. All other times the pirate captain was equal with everyone else. And for taking on that responsibility, the pirate captain was given double the share of any treasure because the pirates understood when there was no pressure, 
Things can be done slowly. Things can be done by committee. But when it comes to pressure situations such as combat, someone needs to be in charge and everyone else needs to follow. To get back to the original question, what about when it comes to a love relationship, an intimate relationship such as a husband and wife? There's a little different, I think. Here I would tend to follow the thinking of Jerry Spence. Um, If you think about dominance hierarchies, they're about control. It's about who's in control of this relationship, who's in control of this situation. And when it comes to business, when it comes to a school or a pirate ship, when it comes to your everyday life, one person being in control is important. But when it comes to a love relationship, it's not just the husband and the wife. It's not just the two. There's a third person present, and that is the relationship itself. And Jerry Spence points out that when it comes to a love relationship, giving up control, not to the other, but to the relationship, is the winning play. That's the way to show your love. It's not by trying to control the other. It's not by trying to control the relationship, but by giving up control of the relationship to the relationship. Otherwise, you have two people going to sleep at night, each one thinking of how they're going to control the other. But when each one is committed not to themselves and not to their spouse, but to the relationship, when the relationship itself is dominant, that's when harmony can happen. One more example of dominance I want to throw in there. It's an interesting one. So you go to the store and you buy a donut and you give your dollar to the bakery. Who's dominant there? I was thinking about this one. And there, I think it's the government that's actually the dominant one because, and this is an important one, because the government is saying, here is the dollar. This is what it is. Otherwise, we'd go back to a bartering system or we'd go to a place where everyone has their own currency, which is ridiculous. Nothing happens. But when I, as the customer and the bakery as the provider, are submissive to the government in the sense of this is what we're going to be used. We're going to allow somebody else to tell us what we're going to use to conduct our transactions. Then we can move forward easily and safely. It's not chaos. Thank you, Yossi, for your question. All right, we have two more questions, uh, which are kind of related. The first one is, the first one is, how can we address the effect that social media is having on our community standards? Thank you for your question. I I am not a rabbi or a priest or a community leader, so I, I can't talk about community standards. But I can talk about personal values, because I'm a true believer that personal values and sticking to them is one of the keys to having good mental health and personal growth. It's true, social media is a great way to lose your personal values. The internet in large, and social media specific, is designed to get you hooked and keep you hooked. These companies really want to do your thinking for you. I don't mean to sound paranoid. They want to push you in certain directions so that you stay on their platforms, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter. These things are designed to eat up more and more and more of your time. In order to do that, they do want to push you in certain directions. And because of that, you can find yourself exposed to content that goes against your personal values. And it's very insidious because you might not even notice it happening. It can happen slowly. And one thing leads to another. And before you know it, you're going through content and interacting with things that you wouldn't be a month ago or six months ago or or two years ago. This is normal in today's modern era. In a different time, we'll get more into social media and the negative effects it has on mental health. This is not the place where I want to talk about it. 
But when it comes to this specific question, I would say it's really important to have a time in your day or week for reflection specifically about these things. In the Jewish calendar, we have Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, and a large part of that is personal reflection. What has happened over the past year? Where have I slipped in the past year within what I expect for myself? And then how am I going to address it in the future? That's a large part of the atonement process. And having something like that in your day or in your week, a time where you sit down and you go over the past week and where am I doing things that I don't want to be doing? Where am I doing things that wouldn't have done in the past? And how am I going to address it in the future? That self-reflection period is very, very important. One of the things that we lack in today's day and age is quiet time, time by ourselves reflecting on our lives. So bringing some of that quiet time, even five minutes a day, a week, whatever it is, you're setting aside time to say, well, what am I doing now that I haven't been doing in the past? What am I doing now that I've been uncomfortable with in the past? And how can I stop doing that? That's a great way to address the effect that social media can have on your personal values. And of course, the best way is don't go on social media. (laughs) I mean, really, that's the best thing. Not easy but the best. All right, we have one last question, which is also tied to social media. And this was asked by two separate people, uh, Jackie and someone who wishes to remain anonymous. And this is an America-specific question, although I wonder if people around the world feel the same way. And that is, it feels like our politics are so divided now. Why do we feel more divided now than ever before? And before I answer this, I want to be very clear. This is not a political podcast. And I work very hard in making sure that my content can be appreciated by whatever political point of view you may have. And so I'm not going to talk about any specific point of view because that's that's not what I want to get into. It's not what I'm here for. But it is true that both people on both sides of the political divide, left, right, liberal, conservative, do feel like we're at a more divided time in this country than ever before. Why is that? And many people have many theories, and my guess is It's probably all of them. We look for simple answers, as we'll get to in one second. It's probably not a simple answer, but I do want to point out a couple of things that I think are important to keep in mind. The first is that politics has become more ubiquitous. So in the past, if you were watching sports, sports is just sports. If you're reading a book, books were just books. Listening to music was just music and movies were just movies. And more and more, people are inserting their political messages into sports and books and movies. In the past, you never knew what uh, a quarterback or or a, a basketball center felt about politics. And you never knew what singers felt about politics. You never knew what authors, when they were reading their books, where they fell in the political spectrum. And more and more, it's becoming obvious. And so what happened was people that were interested in politics in the past you know, would pay attention, and people that weren't interested didn't pay attention. And now it's becoming harder and harder not to pay attention because it's more and more in our face. That has changed. Some things have not changed is the viciousness of media. I know people feel, again, both on the right and left, that the media can be especially vicious nowadays. And that's not true. They've always been that way. If you look at Grover Cleveland, who was a president who was, uh, shall we say, rotund in a time when most people were not, and he had some unpopular policies that people felt would negatively affect poor children. And so he was depicted in political cartoons, which was the main media of the day, as carrying off children to eat them, which is terrible. And and George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, all of our presidents throughout 
have faced terrible, terrible media. And some of the things that politicians have done to each other in the past were really, really bad. Uh, we just don't know about them because we didn't have as much access to people in their personal lives and media was not as widespread or as instant. But the timber of media and the timber of politics, as far as the politicians themselves being nasty, that has not changed. What has changed is social media. And this is kind of tied to our last question. And this is where the mental health piece comes in. We as creatures prefer simplicity. Our brains are designed to make things as simple as possible, to find as many shortcuts as possible, because we want to be as efficient as possible. And so if we have to think out every single thing that we do, we would never get anything done. And so our brains come up with all sorts of simplifications and shortcuts in order to circumvent that and get stuff done. Again, we look back at dominance hierarchies, which is a system of shortcuts. And so one of the things that we do is we tend to label people, including ourselves and groups. And we think of ourselves and others in terms of labels, even though everybody's different, and therefore nobody fits completely into one group. And that was fine in the past. But now what's happened with social media is that social media, the internet in general, and social media specifically, really pushes the idea of simplifying everything down to the smallest possible denominator. What's the largest group we can put you in? That's where we're going to put you. Um, and, and also part of it is that people spend less time together. So in the past, you spent more time with people that disagreed with you in your ideas. But now we tend to do that less and less because we group ourselves more and more online, on Facebook, on Twitter, with people that fall into that larger group. And so what's happening is our groups are becoming larger and larger, and there's a smaller and smaller amount of groups. And therefore, if I'm in one group and you're in another, I feel like I belong with these people and I don't feel like I belong with all those people. And even though if you look at people's opinions, often they agree more than they disagree because life is not black and white. Life is not one side or another. Things are gray, but that is lost, that subtlety. That grayness is lost in the world of social media where we try to make you fit into the largest possible group. Now, why social media does that is a completely separate discussion, if it's even a discussion for this podcast. But I do believe that's an important factor, the mental health factor of don't fall for your brain's tricks of trying to simplify everything down. Don't fall for it even though you're being encouraged to every single day. Thank you to everyone that sent in the questions. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for everyone that's been listening. If you're looking for ways to support the podcast, go to thoughtfulmindpodcast.com. Uh, there's a section there on how to support. If you want to get in touch with your own questions or your own feedback, email us at thoughtfulmindpodcast@gmail.com. Call us at 732-523-0061. 732-523-0061. I truly appreciate everybody that's been sharing this podcast. Please share it in real life if you enjoyed it. Rate it and review on iTunes or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this podcast. As always, go out, believe in yourself.